0: Before we get into the message, I'd like to uh, pray, because as you know, today is 9-11, and 15 years ago, some horrific things happened in our country. New York is usually the center of attention regarding this tragedy, and rightfully so. Yet, there were people in our church that were equally as disaffected. We had flight attendants and gate agents that ushered people onto one of the planes that ran into the towers. We also had people who knew folks at the Pentagon working there who were, were horribly uh, touched by the fact that many of them died when the plane ran into the Pentagon, flew into the Pentagon. And so we, we want to pray and ask God to help those who are mourning. Moments like this just don't go away. Now, as Christians, we can mourn like those who have hope, it says in Thessalonians. And so we we mourn differently but it doesn't mean we don't mourn and so I want to pray for our nation and pray for protection for those who are helping to protect us Father I'm asking for your grace for those who lost loved ones 15 years ago that you would come and comfort them please and Father that you would help those who are intentionally putting themselves in harm's way so that we can be kept safe we pray you bring them back safely to us, in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. Amen. Turn with me over to the book of Exodus, chapter 19. We're going to continue our series on the faithfulness of God. We're going to look at Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 4. Exodus 19, verses 1 through 4. Faithfulness of God. It says in the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And when they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel. Verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Lord, help us as we study. Three things I'd like to concentrate on out of this passage. One, how God beat our captor. Two, how he bore us on eagles' wings. And three, how he brought us to himself. The Israelites had been out of Egypt exactly three days when God told Moses to tell this to the people. And he was was in the process, God was, forming this very large family into a cohesive nation. They had been held captive by Egypt for hundreds of years. And so their grandparents, their great-grandparents, their great-great-grandparents had only known slavery. And culturally, though... They were of the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in heritage. I'm not quite sure how much they acted like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were probably a little bit more influenced by the Egyptian culture than they would like to admit. If only that they felt like they were slaves even when they were free. They had a mentality that just didn't flow in the right right pathways to make good decisions. And so though they were free, they, they still kind of acted like slaves. Though they were cared for, they felt like they weren't. Though they had the God of the universe with them, they felt like they were alone. Everything was backwards for these people. And God was doing what he could to try to produce a brand new mindset in their hearts, a new way of looking at life. And he's, he told Moses, I, I want you to be here. And I want you to camp here, but get ready to tell them some things. And the first thing I want you to to remind them of is how I brought them out. That I, you saw with your eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Let that be a memory. And there's something about how God beat your captor that never needs to be out of your mind. It always needs to be a foundation upon which you... You look at all of your life. God did some amazing things to the Egyptians. So amazing were they that the Israelites didn't even have to lift a sword to get out. Though they were slaves of the Egyptians. Didn't have to lift a sword. Didn't touch a shield. Didn't have to swing an axe. Didn't have to arm their bows. Nothing. God did it all for them and that not because of them but in spite of them you remember when Moses was on the mountain the first time and he was trying to, to get out of doing what God wanted him to do I mean he, he was doing everything he could to give excuses as to why he was not the man for the job you don't understand who I am God I, I've never been a good spokesperson I mean I got a good job here why do you want to use me find somebody else he gave every excuse out of the son because he, had a, he thought he had a pretty good plan for retirement And this wasn't in it. And so he was telling him, well, well, if I go, who do I say sends me? Tell him I am. It's not much of a name, but I'll work it. I'll work it. Well, I mean, they won't believe me if I go. I mean, who am I? Throw down the staff. Staff becomes a snake. Puts it back down, becomes a staff again. Put your hand in your cloak. Pulls it out, it's leprous. Puts it back in, pulls it out, it's clean. He said, these signs will be for your brothers, the the Israelites. There were signs that were given to Pharaoh, but these were primarily for the Israelites, the first ones. Because the Israelites needed to know that God cared about them, and he was sending deliverance by his own hand. Miraculously, he was sending deliverance. And Moses, remember, he was a guy that had already failed once at the attempt. His exit from Egypt was precipitated because he went and killed an Egyptian taskmaster who was beating on a a Hebrew slave. Thinking that he would be seen as a hero by his Hebrew brethren, he was still seen as an Egyptian because he lived in Pharaoh's house, he ate Pharaoh's food, he spoke Egyptian, he thought like an Egyptian even though he was hereditarily Jewish and nobody really trusted him. So when he came upon two Israelites who were fighting, He said, break it up. He said, what are you going to do? You're going to kill one of us just like you killed the Egyptian? He realized, I didn't make any friends when I did that, did I? You all don't like me. And now he was odious to the Egyptians because he killed one of their taskmasters. And the Israelites would not harbor him as a fugitive. So he had to get out of Dodge in a hurry. He he tried this deliverance thing once. It didn't work. And so he's saying, you want me to go back again? I could have to go back different. And he went back. Showed up to the Israelites, told them what God had told them. They said, okay, and then let's see. He did the signs. They said, whoo, God's with you. Then he went to, to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. Pharaoh said, eh, no. <laughs> and I know what your problem is. You all are just lazy. You don't want to work. So what we're going to do is you, you, we're going to make your quota of bricks the same, but now you've got to make them without the straw that we provide. You've got to go out and find your own straw which put double labor on the the Israelites to try to do the same thing. You know who they blamed? Moses. They came to Moses and said, you call this help? You call this help. You've made our lives harder since you've been here. We don't, leave. Leave. We're we're fine just like we are. Listen, before we get too self-righteous about the Hebrew brethren, we militate against our own salvation sometimes. Do you, remember, do you remember when mama was trying to bring you to church when you were 12? And you were, trying, you were figuring out every reason why it's not to go. When, when the Lord was trying to speak to you through that TV preacher, and you turned the channel. When you, when you actually got to church, and you were trying to figure out how to, how to play on your iPod, Too much conviction on that point. (laughs) You were doing everything in the sun not to pay attention to anything that was going on. You just wanted to get out of there in a hurry. Or when God, God began to speak to you and convict you concerning your own sin, and he told you not to go here, and you did it anyway. Not to go there, and you did that anyway. You militated against your own salvation. And then when you got in trouble for doing your wrong, you blamed God. Where were you, God? Where were you? I needed you. Well, you shouldn't have gone to the club, bro. The way, I told you not to go. I, bullets started flying. I told you not to go. We militate. We fight against God's own plan for our life, and then we blame him when things go wrong. This is why I want to contextualize this entire passage in the faithfulness of our God. Because even when we were non-compliant, he decided, I'm going to save you all by myself. I'm going to save you. You you won't even help yourself. You won't help yourself save yourself, but I'm going to save you all by myself. That's what God did. And as a result of him being faithful to himself, he became faithful to you even when you weren't faithful to yourself. Israelites, you saw what I did to the Egyptians. I vanquished them. 10 signs, 10 plagues in Egypt happened on this side of the street, but they didn't happen on your side of the street. It was dark on the left side of the sanctuary. It was light on the right side of the sanctuary. When plagues happened over here, they didn't happen over there. Everything I protected you from My hand was with you the entire time, and if that wasn't enough, I set it up to where when you came out, I brought you to a box canyon with the Red Sea in front of you, hills on either side, and I I inspired Pharaoh to come after you. I hardened his heart once again. Now, when God hardens somebody's heart, it doesn't necessarily mean they were unwilling. Please understand, you did your sin all by yourself. You messed up all by yourself. That doesn't mean that there was an inspiration behind how in the world to get you in the situation whereby you could be so disgusted with yourself that you would finally surrender. But you can never blame God, surely not the devil, for your own misdeed. You messed up all by yourself. Pharaoh had every... Why do you think God did 10 plagues in Egypt? Why not just start with the last one first? Death of the firstborn. Why 10? Why 10? Because he was trying to save the Egyptians. Even though Pharaoh may not listen, all those other people, God is the Lord. God is the Lord. I, I, I prayed, I prayed to, to my God. It didn't work. God is the Lord, the Hebrew God. Okay, I may not have come from Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, but I want you to know, I'm with y'all. I'm, also, I'm with y'all. I'm with y'all. I don't, I don't, Pharaoh, okay, I'm, I'm under his authority. I mean, it's part of my, but I'm with y'all. I am with y'all whoever your God is I'm going to serve him he cared about the Egyptians that's why ten signs to let all the people know he is God the Israelites had all of this and if that wasn't enough brought them to the Red Sea and after those ten signs the Israelites began to complain at the Red Sea what kind of leader are you Moses you bring us to a box canyon like this. Didn't you think that the Egyptians were going to come after us? My goodness, this is just terrible. You're horrible. We're going to appoint a new leader and go on back. To which Moses said, God, what do you want me to do? To which God said, why are you talking to me? Now, that's, that, that one little phrase is amazing to me. Because it was only one thing to do, and that was open the Red Sea. And it's almost as if God... Thought Moses ought to know that. Like, there's never been done before. Never been done before. God said, Why are you talking to me? Do something. Moses said, Okay. Part. (laughs) (laughs) And the Red Sea parted, and they went through on dry ground. And they get out on the other side. It was so amazing. So amazing just that they went through. They they went through the water. And then after they got on the other side, Moses on cue demanded that the waters close. And they closed as a result of him saying close. And and the closing happened to be upon the Egyptians who were led into the sea, lured in by the sea still being open and seeing the, the Israelites on the other side thinking we can get to them. And once the last chariot and horsemen were in, whoop, gone. And all of their enemies were vanquished. All of their enemies were vanquished. And this is a picture for for all time for us. Our enemy has been vanquished. Colossians 2, verse 13 through 14 says, And when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, God made us alive together with him. Even when we were uncircumcised in the flesh of our own heart, he made us alive together with him, having canceled out the certificate of debt that was decreed against us, that we no longer had to to go go and, and, and be judged by what we had done wrong. There was a certificate of death that was decreed against us as a result of our wrongdoing but he then took that certificate of death which was proper i mean he was right we were all wrong and we deserved to die he took it and nailed it to the cross having nailed it to the cross he took all of our wrongdoing and the punishment we deserve as a result of the wrongdoing and and when he died it died it no longer had power and when he went into the grave it went into the grave and when he rose it stayed So that now there is no longer a certificate, a reason for the enemy to accuse you to God. To say, wait, you can't be good to them. Look at what they've done wrong. Every reason for your judgment has been crucified. Are you listening? Now, this is important. Every reason. And it's no longer valid in terms of accusing you of doing wrong. No longer. And not only what you have done, but what you are doing and what you will do. The cross has eternal benefit. That is not an excuse for any of you to say, Ooh, hoo, 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 I can do what I want to do. Something wrong with you if you go there. Something's wrong with the way you think. Something's wrong with your heart. I'm not saying you're not going to heaven. I'm just saying you're not right on earth. You need to change. What kind of do, what kind of repay is that for someone who gave their life for your benefit? To say, oh, you just purchased so I can sin." You just forgave me so I can do what I want to do. I question a lot about your commitment to Christ if you have that attitude. There ought to be more victory in your life than defeat. There ought to be an attitude every day that says, Lord, for what you did for me, I want to make you happy the rest of my days. Every moment of my life, I want to please you because you saved me even against my own wishes. That's how faithful God was. And here now, the Israelites are past the Red Sea. They've had 10 plagues, they had the Red Sea, and now they're in the wilderness. And God is trying to bring a cohesiveness to who they are. Remember your salvation experience, how God defeated the enemy for you. Now, some of you are saying, well, wait a minute, if the enemy's defeated, why am I still battling? Why am I rebuking the devil in my own life and helping other people get them out too? What's that? Well, defeat doesn't mean inactive. there is is a lot that's still wrong with us. And and as a result of, of us being not as right as we should be, God has allowed the enemy in the world to at times remind us of how messed up we really are. Because if you don't feel the sense of going wrong which you have in your soul if you don't feel the temptation to go left when you should go right you won't know that it's wrong to do so and so God allows the enemy in the world as much as we don't like it so that we can be revealed too about the condition of our own soul and sometimes the enemy afflicts us with things but listen to me it doesn't mean that affliction means victory for him God is able, if you will respond well in the middle of your difficulty, God is able to make your difficulty seem as if it was part of his perfect plan to get you where you need to be right in the middle of his will. If you respond well. I don't know how he does that, but that's why he's God. I mean, he's just amazing. Take Joseph, for instance. The second to last born of of Jacob. The most favored son out of the twelve. Boy, he had some brothers that didn't like him at all, not at all. And, 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 and this, this, this came as a result of Joseph having two wives, his favorite wife, Rachel, who had his two boys that he loved the most, Joseph and Benjamin, and then Leah, who was his other wife, who had six boys and one girl, Leah, um, six, six. Tamar, Dinah, I can't remember, Dinah, <laughs> Dinah, six boys and one girl. And Leo, Leo, and, 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 and first of all, it's not a good idea to be a bigamist. It's, it's just not. It's, it's just not. Just just, 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 You know, it's not only not good, gentlemen. You can't handle one. I mean, you got enough trouble as it is trying to figure out how in the world to 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 figure out what it means to be a good husband to one. You can't do two. But if you were to do two, don't do sisters. <laughs> Don't do that. That's really dumb. Now you created enmity in the family. I mean, they don't even like one another anymore. They're vying for the attention of one man. And, and, you know, blood relatives and siblings, they they, they got issues anyway. They got to get over it. Now you created this one. And so the first four brothers who were born to Leah all had issues. Levi, Reuben, Simeon, and Judah, boy, these boys had issues. And it's probably because Leah would, would let them know, well, your daddy doesn't like me as much as he likes my sister. You know what that does to kids? How that messes with their mind? I don't have proof of that, except that each one of these boys, these four, we have one untoward, horrible circumstance of each one of their lives that we don't have of the other six. We don't have any, except Joseph, we don't have any information about the other six or seven. We have no idea. But these four were all messed up, and they happened, meaning they were born before Joseph was, in the early years of Leah's life. And and they knew that their daddy loved Rachel more than he loved their mother. That's bad. Setting the stage for when Joseph comes, they hate him already. They hate him. Now, they're in their teens and 20s when Joseph was born. And when he comes, daddy does some, some stuff you, you, you probably ought not do to your child. He, um, he, gives, he, he treats him like the favorite, treats him that way, and gives him a brand new coat of many colors. Now, we think coats of many colors aren't a big deal. But back then, you had to pay a lot of money just to get a coat that either wasn't gray, black, or white because you had to find the dyes necessary to keep the color of the coat the way it was, and it wouldn't wash out with the washing. And these dyes were very expensive. One dye would cost you equivalent of, say, $1,000 just to do an entire coat. If you have many colors, we're talking mink, full length. Full length. And, and unfortunately, this boy got it when he was, like, 12. Why are you going to give a full length to a 12-year-old, daddy? And so daddy says, go and check on your brothers for me, see how they're doing. And, and he wears his, his, his mink. He wears his coat to, to go to 7-Eleven. Right. Whoa, 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 whoa. And so he shows up, and his brothers see him coming from a long way away. Why? Because ain't nobody got a coat like that. Nobody. And so they see him. He's wearing his coat. He's wearing his coat. It's Tuesday. He's wearing his coat. It's Tuesday. <laughs> they hate him so much so they say we're going to kill him when he gets to us instead they sell him into slavery they make some money on him and they tell his father that he was killed by wild animals and now Joseph is sold into slavery well the problem with Joseph being sold into slavery is manyfold. one it's a bad situation two he had a dream that we two dreams that were pretty significant that his brothers and his mother and father at some point were going to come and bow down to him in service and he told the dream to his brothers eh, not smart but he's now in Egypt a long way away from ever seeing that, that possibility happen I mean I'm not even home anymore how, how could and I'm a slave who's going to bow down to a slave he's bought by Potiphar who happens to be captain of the guard for, the, for Pharaoh, which is head of the secret service. And Potiphar is powerful. Joseph has such a good attitude. Though we might not have near as good of an attitude, knowing the dreams that we've got for our life, and all of a sudden seeing us going in the opposite direction of the dreams. God, where are you? Do you love me? What about this? How can this ever happen, that, th- that this is happening now? I- we, we wouldn't have near as good attitude, but Joseph became the best slave you could be. So much so that Potiphar said, I concern myself with nothing in my house except my food and my wife. Everything else you have charge of. Joseph was that kind of man. As a 17-year-old, he rose to be that kind of man. And so in his mid-20s, he was running Potiphar's house, the chief of the Secret Service's house, until... This good-looking seven, probably 21-year-old, 22-year-old, now got the attention of Potiphar's wife. Mm. Potiphar's wife didn't have too many good intentions. And she began to pursue him, and Joseph wound up being accused of sexual assault when nothing of the case was true. She lied on him. He ran out of the house, ran so fast as she tried to grab him that she took his garment and then accused him, saying he came to try to assault me, and here's the proof of it. I have his coat. Now, I've looked and read about Egyptian history. Generally speaking, if you were accused of this kind of assault, and definitely if you did it, the penalty was murder. Murder. But Potiphar puts Joseph in jail. What does that tell you that Potiphar knew about his wife? Now, I can't just ignore it now. I can't just let you off, but I I know my woman. I know my woman, and I know you. I know you never would have done this. So he winds up in jail. Now, that's, that's good for Joseph. He's not dead, but he's still going the wrong way. He's still being a slave is one thing, but now he's in jail. Now, you say to yourself, if God is sovereign, why did he put him in jail? Well, I've also done some reading and and the history of Egypt and slavery was that a slave could earn enough money to buy his own freedom. So you could work business deals and if you were master of the house, you could work business deals with other people who did business with the house and somehow get some for yourself too. You could make that happen and if the master was pleased with you, he could give you some resources. Could it be that Joseph was trying to figure out how to buy himself out of slavery? If so, where would he have gone if he did? Back home. But if he had gone back home, would he have ever had the opportunity to be prime minister of Egypt and save the world from starvation? So what might God have had to do in order to keep him in Egypt? (laughs) I'm sorry, boy, but I got to put you in prison. Yeah, you're going to jail. You're going to jail. You've just been so faithful. you got enough money to buy yourself out. I can't let you leave, though. I can't let you leave. yet. Yeah, you've got you to go to jail. God did this to him. My Lord. Somehow, in the grand scheme, that we would consider that which was orchestrated by the enemy. And I'm going someplace with this. Orchestrated by the enemy. This can't be God's will. I'm going in the wrong way. And I'm going in the wrong way in status. I mean, who's going to ever listen to a criminal? And nobody would think that a slave would have any good report worthy of being heard when the captain of the guard's wife is accusing him. I'm here forever. I'll never get out of here. Yet, he didn't have a bad attitude. He was such a good prisoner that he became the best prisoner in the prison, so much so that the warden came to him and said, here are the keys. (laughs) Who is this guy? Who is? Believing God. Joseph can pastor me. I let this brother pastor me, believing God in the worst circumstances possible. I'm getting someplace with this. You think the devil has all power. God can use even untoward circumstances for your gain. You think you're going in the wrong direction. God's saying you're going exactly where I want you to go. Because in the kingdom, the way up is down. I don't know. I don't know. I I just know it's true. I don't like it any more than you do, but the way up is down. All of a sudden, a couple of guys have some dreams who were thrown into prison. Cupbearer and a baker. They can't interpret them. Joseph, a dream interpreter, knows God really well. Keeps his spiritual antenna up and his gifts honed. Does not get discouraged. Is not shaking his fist at God every day saying, why am I here? This is terrible. You have left me. Oh, God, you've left me. You You don't like me anymore. You don't even like me. That's where we would be. We're talking about now year 12 or 13 of being a slave or a prisoner. You're 12 or 13. These prisoners come. And they, I had a dream. Nobody could. Joseph interprets both of them. They both come to pass. The cupbearer gets restored. And Joseph says, as he's on his way out, could, um, one thing, just remember me. Yeah, and it says specifically, the cupbearer forgot. <laughs> he forgot. The cupbearer, cupbearer was the guy who was responsible for the king's wine to make sure he didn't get poisoned. It it doesn't sound like much else, but it is a huge job, major responsibility there. He got restored. Then it says, two years later, this is year 17 now, excuse me, year 13, two years later, Pharaoh has a dream. Nobody can interpret it. Cupbearer comes to Pharaoh and says, I hate to bring up a time when... The king was mad at your servant, but um, listen, you were mad at me, and you threw me into prison. But there was this guy. I had a dream, and he interpreted it. I think he can help you. Who was he? (laughs) Joseph. Oh, yeah, he was a guy that should have been killed but wasn't and thrown in prison. Hey, he's a good man. Bring him up here. Mm. Joseph interprets the dream. Pharaoh goes, wow, that's amazing. Joseph says, now, what you need to do, find a man who can steward this. The dream was seven years of plenty. Fat cows were coming out of the, the Nile just, just beautifully stocked and, and this corn was coming up and it had ears or big and fat and many kernels and then that happened seven of them and then there were seven that were lean and gaunt and horrible harvests and it meant seven years of plenty and seven years of famine and Joseph said God's going to give you seven years of amazing harvest here but it's it, you, you got to be wise because if you eat it all you won't have anything for the famine so let Pharaoh find somebody who's wise and can manage this. Pharaoh looks at him and says I don't know if I can find anybody in my kingdom as wise as you. You're in charge. And nobody, nobody in this kingdom you'll answer to except me. Joseph's sitting there going, I was just cleaning out a toilet in a prison. And... If, if I." I'm, I'm prime minister of the most powerful nation on the earth. Thank you, Jesus. He needed him to stay because he was the only one who could figure out what to do with the resources to help save the world. God can take your horrible circumstances. You go in the wrong way in every, everything you think and use them well if you respond well in the middle of them. The passage of scripture that has probably great import in your life, maybe more than most, the one I don't like the most. When you encounter various trials, my brethren, make sure you have joy in the middle of it. James 1 verse 2, you must come through well in order for the circumstances that are untoward to work for your benefit. The enemy only has, don't clap, I don't have time. The enemy only has what you give him. He's only got the power that you give him. If you give him your attitude, he'll make the attitude so bad you won't get anything redemptive out of your difficult circumstance. You'll go in bad, come out worse. And instead of getting better, you will be more bitter. He has been defeated. He only has the power you give him because God is able to manipulate anything he does. And make it work as if it was a part of his plan to promote you. Completely defeated. I have preached my entire sermon on this one point. It's 1.45. We're supposed to be done. But I'm going to go on. Point two. He bore us. He bore us. He not only beat our our captor, he bore us. And it says he bore us on eagles' wings. Now, eagles are amazing creatures. The same word for eagle is vulture. They had no distinction between the two. Birds of prey were pretty much all in the same category. But birds of prey had this amazing ability to glide on thermals, to spread out their wings and just float. Now, a sparrow, a little bird, I mean, he got to work really hard to get where he's going. It's a... But an eagle just... And he's just moving. There's something about the stability of God that allows you to be born on his wings that even when the thermals of life, heat begin to rise in your life because you are on him and in him, you can float through those thermals and actually let them take you to another level. He bore, he says, on he's the one that told Moses to tell the people this. I bore you on eagles' wings. Now, these thermals are really important for the traveling of the eagles because it allows them to stay high enough and use as little energy as possible to see what prey is down there on the ground. And from a half a mile up, these, these birds have, have eyesight that is amazing. It's, it's far beyond ours. They can see a rabbit a, rabbit, a half a mile up on the ground. We have a hard time seeing a rabbit in the backyard. I mean, they're, they're camouflaged. It takes forever. We got to see one running across a green grass and say, oh, look, a rabbit. But that eagle has seen it a long time ago that's so good. in the brush that is brown. That's so good. Eyesight, that's amazing. If they were able to read, they could read a newspaper at 20 yards, 20 yards. We think that with that eyesight, they can actually see one thermal after another. Now, you can see thermals. But you need the distinction between something hot and something cooler in order to do it. So, have you ever driven in the, in the South in the summer? And, and you, you know, paved road, and it's straight. And you go on this paved road, and all of a sudden, about 400 yards down the, the road, you see a little shimmering on the highway. It looks like water, but it's not. It's actually the heat that is rising from the pavement and distinct from the cooler air. And you can actually see it blending with the cooler air. And that's the shimmering that the, the, that the hot air is doing. And the light is being reflect, refra- refracted through the shimmering. And that's what you see. We think the, the, um, the eagles can actually see that, that hot air moving without the distinction needed from the pavement. And so they see with these kinds of eyes the next thermal. And they run into it. Listen. The only way for you to get to the next level is to have the trial that's hot enough. Woo! Yeah. Yeah. The heat's got to come to your life. It's got to come. I don't like it. I wish it didn't, it didn't happen. I really do, but the heat. and You want to get to the next level. <laughs> Some of y'all say, well, I like my level where I am right now. It's really good. Yeah, I'm, I'm satisfied right here. No, 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 no. God heard your prayer. Make me into what I should be. Okay, let's go to the next level. He brings one trial after another to you. The only way you're going to get higher, though, is to let him carry you. You have to be in him. You have to be on him. You have to be with him. And he will take you to another level. I bore you on eagle swings. You should not be here, Israel. You shouldn't be. You went through a bunch of stuff there in Egypt, but I brought you out myself. And my goal was not to, just to deliver you, but to li- to, not just to deliver you from, but to deliver you to. Yes. I'm about to bring you into something, which he said lastly, to bring you to myself. Yeah. All right. All right. To myself. Yes. Now, the, the reason God brings us to himself is far beyond just the need for fellowship. You just aren't that good a company. You're not. It's not like he's looking for somebody to talk to. And if he was, it wouldn't be you. It wouldn't be me. We're just not that, we we don't, we're not on the same level, y'all. We talk about stuff we shouldn't talk about. We think about stuff we should, he's not looking for fellowship with you. Not out of need, out of desire, because he loves you. But as he is bringing you to himself, it's more about, it's more, it's more than just about fellowship. The word brought in the Hebrew is the word bo, "bo" B-O. And it actually means to advance or come into. So I called you out, bore you on eagle's wings, defeated the enemy, that I might advance you to me. When God is calling you to fellowship with him, he's calling you to move from one place to another. To actually advance. And the closer you get to him, the closer you get to your purpose. Hear me. Stop hitting the snooze. Get up and do your devotional. Because the closer you get to him, the closer you get to your purpose. He's calling you to advance. Come to church every week. In America, 40% of a congregation, 40% only comes one time a month. So on an average, we have anywhere from 25 to 27 people come here to this location every week. That means that there are another thousand folk out there every week who are just sitting. And they come once a month thinking that somehow that's enough advancement. They can get what they need. But they aren't growing. And I'm talking to some of you because this is your once a month. I know. (laughs) I know, yeah, yeah, you're sitting there saying, oh my, oh, he done found out, who told him, who told him, (laughs) (laughs) but you're not, you're not growing fast enough to be able to handle what's around the corner, you have no idea the trial you're going to have to face in six weeks, five months, a year from now, and you've got to be the kind of person That can go through the valley of the shadow of death without accusing God in the process. Knowing and being satisfied that though you may not be able to change the circumstances, being satisfied with the fact that he is with you. And that the operative word in that entire passage is going through, (laughs) not staying in. And so you're about to come to a new pasture, but if you don't go through well, you won't even enjoy the new pasture that you're coming to because you're so mad that you had to go through. It is so critical that you advance while life is good. Now, everybody, when life is bad, oh, I'm coming to church every week, Pastor. What? Every, I'm gonna be there on Wednesday night. I'm going to small group. I've been doing my. Every, when things are bad, you advance in a hurry. But that's because you're being assaulted, and everything is trying to push you back. And so, just to stay where you are, you must push back. But there ought to be real advancement in your life when all things are well so that you are stronger to face the next circumstance and better able to handle everything that the enemy might do so that you can come out a whole lot stronger in the end than when you went in. He's calling you to himself that you might advance. And this advancement needs to happen in a significant way. Please, we have our, 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 our small groups out there. You need to go. You need to get in a small group because that's your midweek advance. To hang around the word and the people of God who can encourage you and help you. To get to know folk that you need to encourage and help. To let the community of the believers have some benefit in your life so you can grow faster. And let somebody's victory be yours. Let them be a springboard for you. I mean, we're starting the NFL season today. Yeah, we are. Yeah, yeah. And most of y'all don't care, but I, I kind of live in that environment. And and, 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 and just, this ought to be a moment where you start afresh. Let's just make this day a new day. <laughs> and, and and for this season of your life, you're gonna go thirteen and three. Oh, okay. <laughs> Nobody wants to go thirteen and three. <laughs> the, the NFL has sixteen games. If you're thirteen and three, you go to the playoffs. You had a great year. Nobody ever calls you a loser even though you lost three. Now, I'd like to say 16-0, and 0, but, but I know you. So, that's not going to happen. That's not going <laughs> to that, 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 happen. That's just not going to happen. You ain't going to go undefeated. You're just not. But 13-3 and 3 is great. Yeah. Unfortunately, some folk go 0-16. Now, that is possible. Unfortunately, that's possible. No victory at all. They don't expect it and they don't live it. When God has brought you out, bore you on His wings, and brought you to Himself that He might advance you so that you could have more victory than defeat. Yeah. And for all that, we, too, we need to acknowledge. It, this entire passage was all about what he did for them. It's his faithfulness toward his people. This is how good God has been to you. This is what he has in mind for you. This is how he treats you better than you deserve. Better than I deserve. He, I don't know how in the world I got here except for the grace of God. That's the only thing to which I can attribute the progress of my life. It's the grace of almighty God. And for that, I am very grateful, and I will express it next week with my wallet. Next week, we have a Thanksgiving offering. Thanksgiving offering is one of those things that is scripturally prescribed but not mandated, meaning God gives some reasons as to why people ought to give Thanksgiving offerings. In Leviticus chapter 7, and in Psalm 50, David says, I will give my Thanksgiving offering to the Lord, and I will pay my vows. More than just lip service, there was an offering that God had that said, here's a way for you to tangibly express how grateful you are for my provision in your life. And you could do it any time you wanted. It wasn't a prescribed time of the year. It wasn't a a moment in, in the week. Anytime you wanted, it was a free will. But God said, it's important that you do it at some point. And I'm grateful for 34 years. I really am. But I have so much more to be grateful for than just my church, that I am privileged to help shepherd. I got a great wife. I got a great family. I got great friends. There is no man on the earth who is more blessed than bread. Doesn't exist. And I'm not talk- I haven't mentioned a thing about money. I'm not talking about that. By the way, I need more. But I'm not talking about that. <laughs> I got kids in college. I'm talking about just... My life, nobody is more blessed. Nobody. There may be some who are equal, but nobody's more. And so every year I come to this moment with my pocketbook, with my, y'all, we don't write checks anymore, with my app. (laughs) I come and say, God, I want you to know. (laughs) You can't even do it. Send. I <laughs> I come to you grateful for all that you've done and I want to show it with more than just the words in my mouth. Come next week if God's treated you better than you deserve, if he's loved you when you were unlovable, if he's healed you when you were sick, if he's fixed stuff you could not, please let him know how happy you are about that. He is faithful even when we're not.